Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. A conversation this morning with the mayor of New York. Based on the briefing from my law enforcement officials and based on the evidence that we were able to accumulate, uh, he has now been upgraded to a suspect. And we're asking all New Yorkers uh, to assist us in his apprehension. Uh, please do not approach him. Uh, if you see him or if you know about his, you know his right. whereabouts, please notify law enforcement. Can you tell us what you and all of your staff have learned about Mr. James in the last six or seven hours? Uh, well, you know, this is moving and it's extremely fluid. Uh, there's a host of evidence that we have been recovering. Uh, the NYPD, the FBI, as well as our state law enforcement entities have all co co collaborated together. I cannot say enough about the fast uh, work that you have, you are witnessing. Uh, they had to piece together this case from the van arrival here to the city, uh, to the devices, right. to the things that we collected. They're doing the, a great job in bringing this person to right. justice. Mayor, I want to talk here about what we're going to do, as Governor Hochul said, about crime. You know the numbers in Chicago. You don't know the numbers here. I would say that you are arguably the most qualified politician in the nation with your experience from Bushwick years ago out to where you are now to talk about this. First, on cameras, in amendments, and civil liberties, and all that. London is covered with cameras after terror events. Is this the tipping point where New York City, one-fifth of the cameras of London, begins to monitor the public like London? Well, I think that I've been, I have been talking about this since uh, the time I took office in January. I sent my deputy mayor of public safety across the globe to find out how are we protecting human beings throughout the entire globe. And we are not going to sit back and allow this technology to exist and not protect the people of the city. And we're going to continue to explore it. Mayor Adams, you also had put more police forces into subway stations to protect the people of the city, given that this is just one in a series of events that have unfolded over the last year during the pandemic, even in subway stations, acts of violence. Clearly that failed yesterday. I know you've said you've given yourself an incomplete on crime in the first 100 days of your campaign. Is that incomplete looking more like a failure, less like anything of semblance of a passing grade? Well, uh, we should be clear. We've been here before as New Yorkers. You know, I often talk about my mid-80s when I started in the transit police, ironically. And I'm aware of what it takes to turn mm -hmm. around a generational po uh, poverty, generational crises that feed right. violence uh, in our cities. And then we cannot ignore the overproliferation of guns. Uh, no, NYPD, uh, my administration, has not failed. We have removed 1,800 guns off the streets of our cities since being right. elected. 
Just think about that. Mayor Adams, you are expert at the study of gangs. On January 4th, you stated, you showed up at a press conference and said, we got to do something about gangs. These kids, three dead in the last 24 hours. Not the headlines like Brooklyn, but three dead on Gates Avenue, on Etna Avenue, on Laconia Avenue. What are we going to do about the gangs that pull these kids into crime and violence? Got a zero in. It's called precision policing, uh, not just throwing out a wide net, but uh, having a precision appro approach to those who are trigger pullers and violent gangs. That is at the heart of our crises. Uh, they're the mayor of New York City in an important conversation, and we really need to be abundantly clear that we had a headline at that moment of the apprehension of the suspect, and that was corrected by ABC. We're sorry for that. That happens within the news flow that we have. As you know, on Bloomberg Surveillance, we've done everything we can to speak to experts and to people who have lived so much of continental Europe and this new war. It is our honor now to speak to Nina Kucheva, professor of international affairs at the New School with the heritage of her family far and back to World War II. Nina, we don't have time to go into the Thank story you. of your family coming out of the death of, I believe, your grandfather in World War II, but we can speak to you with your academics at New School, your work at Princeton, of the mind of Vladimir Putin. As we've talked to Angela Stent, you have studied Putin and his affair with not the uh, Russia, the Soviet Union of Khrushchev, but the Russia and Soviet Union of Stalin. What is the distinction of how Vladimir Putin looks at the early Soviet Union? Well, we thank you very much. We know that he doesn't like the early Soviet Union because he thinks it was an interruption of great imperial history when the Soviet Union was uh, trying to become part of its own self, sort of, as Stalin put it, um, a country within its own nation. So socialism, communism with a, um, uh, within one taken country. Putin wants to be, and I disagree with a lot of experts who say he wants to recreate the Soviet Union. He actually wants to go back into history thousand years. And the only reason he's interested in Stalin, or one of the reasons he's inter interested in Stalin, because Stalin was a gatherer of lands, such as Catherine the Great, right. such as Peter the Great. <clears throat> so he was a gatherer of lands, and he sees Khrushchev as somebody who gave away those lands. And if you need to be very brutal and very firm and very angry at the world to get the lands, Putin is going to be that. Mr. Khrushchev was very much affiliated with Poland in the news this morning, Professor Khrushcheva, is Finland. I refuse to believe that Vladimir Putin will not focus on Finland, given his heritage of Leningrad and St. Petersburg. What is the symbolism to Mr. Putin of this new independence of Sweden and the 800-mile border of Finland? Well, it is, you know... Originally, the Russians were saying, well, we're not afraid of Finland and Sweden becoming part of NATO because we have good relationship with them. I think the tone may be changing, but I think what's important here is that Putin trying to prevent NATO from expanding east, in fact, made NATO even more expansional in, in the east and that <clears throat> in the east. And that's that what should really give them pause. On the other hand, what I also know about Putin is that. Once you challenge him, he's going to challenge back. 
So I, I think that it's about time for, for Sweden and Finland to think about NATO because if Putin gets angry, he does get angry. And we, did, we do see it. We, we've seen it and we do see it in Ukraine now. Nina, does this end with regime change in Russia? Well, this is a very terrifying words to say because we go to prison for this, uh, for even utter those words. Um, no, I don't think it does. Uh, it may get less toxic because Putin is toxic. But I do think, I mean, what happened now, and we've never seen it before, even under Stalin, because now the KGB over that, security forces, the FSB and Putin, they are one and the same. Even under Stalin, they were sort of on parallel tracks. But Stalin was a brutal dictator and FKGB, uh, it was a different name then, but security forces worked for him. Now Putin works with, he is the security force. And so in this sense, even if the main hydride, the, at the top of it is the main dragon is gone, the system will remain. The system is not going to give itself up. So maybe there would be slightly better relationship with the outside world. But for the Russians, it really doesn't look good inside. Well, let's talk about inside Russia, Professor. Does domestic feeling within Russia, A, have a bearing on the Kremlin or on Vladimir Putin's decision making whatsoever? And B, what is that feeling at this moment? Well, it was, it's really very interesting what happened because at the beginning it was such a shock on February 24th and about 50%, more than 50% of the country was just terrified, horrified. And a lot of people went, as you remember, went to protest. And then the state completely regrouped and basically any word of opposition now became a crime. Everything is a crime. People just stopped in the streets. Uh, my niece was arrested three times, uh, stopped and asked, why are you here when you're um, when your passport shows that you live in an entirely different part of part of Moscow? So it, it is like that. I mean, it's very Stalinist right now. And so slowly but surely, with also great propaganda on TV that we are liberating, we the Russians liberate our um, Ukrainian brothers from the Nazi regime installed by the United States and NATO, then now about 80% uh, mm -hmm. support, the, as they call it, special operation. I mean, the numbers are fudge, but there is a lot of patriotism. Right. And one of the patriotism part is because the sanctions mm -hmm. now are not just financial and economic. They are cultural, they are mm. societal, they are uh, humanitarian and right. everything. And so Russians have no other choice but to rally around the flag. Professor, I've got 30 seconds. We saw Vladimir Putin yesterday at the Cosmodrome in the far east of Russia. Is he healthy? A lot of rumors, once again, a lot of rumors. He doesn't look sick to me, but the people have been stating that the reason he went into Ukraine sort of fall off the cliff so quickly in fe <clears throat> on February 24th okay. is because he's rushing for something. I don't know that, but there are rumors. Well, uh, Nina Khrushcheva, thank you so much for joining Bloomberg this morning. Perf Professor Khrushcheva at the New School uh, here in uh, New York City and, of course, with her heritage across so many decades of the Soviet Union and the Russian Federation. We're now going to do what we do best at Bloomberg Surveillance, and that is speak to someone truly expert. Stephen Englander is global head of G10 FX Research at Standard Chartered. They have a fantastic Bill Winters remit to look at emerging markets and particularly the Pacific Rim up to Japan. Stephen Englander, thank you so much for joining us this morning. The ramifications of a weaker Japanese yen now at 126 out to 130. 
What does that do to the degrees of freedom that Powell and Lagarde have? How does weak yen redound back to an unraveling of the yen redound back to America and Europe? Well, I'd say that the yen is very exceptional, along with the euro, where the central banks have some ambiguity with respect to how hawkish they want to be. In, in fact, the, the uh, BOJ is downright dovish. ECB is kind of on the fence. Um, I don't think it's going to change very much what the Fed does. Um, I don't think the impact on U.S. inflation or global growth is that strong. Um, and the yen is, is weakness is probably partly reflecting Chinese economic growth weakness. And the, you know, the... Um, Governor Kuroda's adamant insistence that they can continue this, the same kind of policy with Japanese rates drifting further and further away from everyone else's. It is such an artificiality, particularly with this phrase of buying their own paper on board at the Bank of Japan. The standard charter view on this, is Japan something that will amend in a malleable way to the shocks of weak yen and all around it in this experiment of YCC? Or do you worry that something could snap? Well, I'd say we're not very excited about the continuation of YCC under current circumstances. Um, we, we don't see a, a huge benefit to Japan from a weaker yen at this point. In a world where um, growth is, is kind of limited by su supply, uh, having a weaker currency doesn't really increase your ability to supply more. Uh, you just pay more for imports. Now, in the case of Japan, the, they wanted to get their inflation up, um, you know, for many years, almost a, a decade or more. But the problem is that they want to get domestic inflation up, not kind of make the population poorer because import costs are higher. So, you know, so we don't see kind of where this is headed. And I'm looking right now at a very confusing picture when you take a look at the, at the words from uh, the, the J Bank of Japan Governor uh, Kuroda versus other authorities that are concerned about what you said, which is rising costs. Kuroda, meanwhile, is the one who's doubling down on easing policies and this sort of uh, yield curve control. At what point will there be a break and will be he be forced to back away from the purchases that Tom was talking about and really pay more attention to the yen? It may not be immediate. Um, you know, in a number of places, the, you know, the limit to how weak the currency can be in, in, in G10 countries is sometimes how expensive it is to travel abroad, but there's not that much of it now. Um, quite possibly the erosion of real wages in Japan is going to become a political issue down, down the road. So that might end up being the limiting factor. And, and I think as... Um, you know, many have discussed, I mean, YCC is great if it's kind of demand shocks that you're you're kind of trying to control. And if your forecast of developments are, are good and it provides guidance, when circumstances have changed as much as they have, um, it's not clear that YCC is the tool that, that really gives you the flexibility that you need. Steve, you mentioned that part of the yen weakness may have to do with the growth story in China. And it strikes me that the BOJ isn't the only central bank we're talking about keeping policy easy while everyone else is out there hawking. China is as well. We were just talking about China, uh, talking about further triple R cuts if needed. Why aren't we seeing more weakness for renminbi that we're seeing for the Japanese yen? 
Well, you know, there's lots of moving parts for China. I, I think that the um, entry of China into the global, um, you know, financial system, the, the opening up of China markets, are, there is uh, capital inflow into China. And the, um, I mean, it's very basic, but, you know, the fact that they have such a large trade surplus on an ongoing basis, um, they're just not spending much abroad. They usually travel a lot. They, they're not. And, um, you know, their current account is strong and they have capital inflows that usually, you know, that's, that's a good sign for the currency. Obviously, I think that there's some concerns uh, about the impact of the latest COVID wave and their ability to um, grow and, and how aggressive the policy easing is going to be. But there are some he uh, tailwinds to CNY that you, you, you can't ignore. Steve Englander, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Standard Charter Bank. We get a perspective, a changed perspective on the American economy. Kathleen Busjancic joins us right now. We are thrilled for that here with mixed uh, moments in the market. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us from Oxford Economics. Kathy, what has changed for you on the duration of high inflation in the last 24 hours? Thanks, Tom. Happy to be with you. Um, you know, the numbers really just confirm our view um, that we've had for a while now that inflation is intolerably high. And you're hearing that from Fed officials. That's why they're saying we need to get to neutral quickly and then actually move to restrictive. Now, we're, we're going to debate whether the peak in inflation for consumer prices, that is, is in, whether it was March or April or May. And we think it's probably April. But nevertheless, the real issue is how quickly does it decelerate? Um, and, and there, I think most believe it's going to be much more gradually uh, than previously thought. And we still see headline inflation still above 5% by the end of the year. So yes, it's a bit of a reprieve, uh, but still really high and, and uncomfortably high for the Federal Reserve. Kathleen, can you make a, help us understand the connection between PPI and CPI? Basically, the prices that consumers pay in stores when they go out to eat versus the prices that producers have to pay and how much that directly gets passed through to future inflation that people feel in the grocery store or when they go on a vacation. What Do we have a sense of how direct and what the time is for that transmission? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, what we have seen in this business cycle, Lisa, that's really different than the prior decade, is that corporate America has really strong pricing power. So let's say if we went back five, six years ago, you would have wholesale prices would have went up. Um, but corporations would have had a hard time passing it on to consumers and it would have eroded profit margins. Now we're not really seeing that, right? Earnings, I know you've been speaking a lot about earnings for the last few days. We're going to get the, um, the, the, the next quarterly earnings data uh, rolling out. But up until this point, earnings have actually been quite good and that's helped fuel the equity market. That's because corporate America has pricing power and yeah. we see that in many surveys. But Kathy, are we starting to reach the limits of that? Lisa has brought it up a few times during this show, Bed Bath & Beyond disappointing, facing inflationary pressure, supply chain headwinds, and a headline just coming out from the company, they see a slowdown in consumer demand. If demand starts to deteriorate, consumers start to push back against higher prices or less tolerant of it, is that the point we're at now? 
We, we may be, and that is the, the, the critical point of this cycle, right? We all know we're late cycle. How late are we in the cycle and how much pressure are on corporate profits, right? So if you see input costs still rising, as the PPI data suggests, unit labor costs, we know wage gains are still high. If companies are no longer able to pass it on as easily uh, to consumers, then it is going to start to bite into uh, corporate profit margins. There's no you know, way around that. And, I, and we may be reaching that point. Now, the consumers to us still look like they're in really good shape. But remember, they don't have that fiscal stimulus, right? The checks that were given out a year ago, that's gone. And now you really have to rely on, on private wage gains to really carry you through and the excess savings. The real question really for all of us when we forecast and look at this is how much of that, you know, $2.7 trillion worth of accumulated savings does the consumer rely on? Kathy, we're also talking about an inflation surge stemming from commodities, and this often has been thought of as something that's temporary, transient, uh, pick your poisonous word. How much is that changing in an era where it does seem like we are deglobalizing, and it seems like these shocks are all having the same impact, even though they are very different in nature? Yeah, that is something that could play out, you know, over the medium to long term, and it, and it is a real potential game changer to the backdrop um, that globalization really brought in disinflationary forces where it kind of capped overall price gains. If that's changing and fraying on the ends, which it looks like it, it may be, that is a very different you know, scenario. Doesn't necessarily, it's hard to say you know, where exactly oil prices or, or copper, where that will play out. But what we can say is that you know, that disinflationary impulse could be behind us. Uh, Kathleen Bachanzik, thank you so much with Oxford Economics. This is a very confusing moment. I am here uh, with Tom Keene, with Kaylee Lines. We are broadcasting both on radio as well as on television at a delicate moment where we're looking at earnings reflecting both strength when you take a look at Delta and the incredible demand, and then you look at J.P. Morgan talking about increased credit loss uh, provisions as a result of some of this uncertainty. Peter Shear has been parsing through all of this and has a fantastic view uh, joining us right now. Peter Shear, of course, uh, with macroeconomics, uh, with the full view, what's your view on how we should read this moment? So I'm starting with equities. I think equities right now are, to me, an easier read. I expect equity indices to go back to the pre-March Fed lows. So I think we get back and retest that. So I think you're going to see ongoing pressure in the equity markets. To me, that translates to pressure on credit spreads. So I think we see credit spreads wide, and particularly the IG sector, which has held in pretty well in the last month or so. And then finally, on Treasury yields, it's a little bit more you know, up in the air. I really actually think the two-year, three-year, four-year space, I want to be buying right. those. I think those yields can head lower. I'm a little bit more confused in the 10s to 30s. Peter, you're great at looking across equities, bonds, currencies, commodities. I'm seeing tangible currency signals of an unraveling with euro almost hitting a 107. It's almost like a David Fulker's Landau moaning from Deutsche Bank with the depreciation we're seeing against the dollar. From where you sit at Academy, is the, is the system malleable now and functionable, or do you look at it with kinks or with breakpoints? So I think we're at this early stages of a real shift in how we have to think about Europe, how we have to think about dealing with autocratic nations, not just Russia, but also China, the Middle East. And I think that's creating this new shift where you're getting the commodity nations and the autocrats aligning with China because China is a massive consumer of what they're selling. 
they need it. I think Europe is going to struggle. I think you're going to start seeing all these second order effects. And you, you don't know what it's going to be, whether it's going to be car harnesses or neon production. Europe's going to have a lot of trouble and food's going to be a problem over the summer as well. So I think it makes sense to you know avoid European assets right now. Well, and when we're talking about food, that leads me to the idea of just higher prices across the board, higher input costs that companies are facing. You're starting to see that showing up in earnings, Bed Bath & Beyond, one example. It's down about 12% at the opening bell after posting a surprise loss, warning of supply chain issues. And the interesting line out of the company is that they're starting to see consumer demand taking a hit. Peter, are we reaching or at the limit of the ability of these companies to exercise pricing power and to pass costs on? Yeah, I think that's very accurate right now. People are just kind of getting hit left, right, and center, right? Whether it's gas, whether it's food, whether it's all the goods and services they're buying. So we're seeing that. At the same time, you're seeing mortgage rates go spike higher. So I think you could get this double whammy where consumers are a little bit spent out, they're tapped out, it's getting too expensive for them to buy, and the housing market could start turning very quickly. So that's why I do think that the Fed is going to be able to maintain QT, which is dangerous for stocks. I think they're going to have to backpedal on all the rate hike talk, though, because I think that economy is more precarious than people are talking about. And Peter, this is perhaps reflected in the banking sector as well as we parse through some of the earnings and take a look at some of the opening bell moves. JP Morgan now down uh, substantially, at one point down more than 4%, now down about 3%. But I was just looking, that is the lowest since January 5th, 2021. For perspective, JP Morgan gained 25% last year. We have almost erased those gains. Peter, what is this saying at a point when we are seeing a re-steepening in the yield curve and you're actually getting some income for overnight rates? Well, what I think is people overestimate what twos, tens means for banks. Most banks are fairly well hedged and that affects their income, but that's really slow and over time where banks make a lot of their money is on transactions. And if you see that housing market slow, the number of refis goes down, the number of new mortgages go down. I think that's a bigger hit. If people start tapping out of their credit cards and saying, hey, I better start paying this off now because yields are getting too high. So I think you could see a bit of a consumer led slowdown, a housing led slowdown. And that to me is much worse for bank earnings than anything to do with two tens yield curve. Peter, a lot of people will say this is an overbeared market. People have gotten so bearish and so down in the dumps at a time when companies are still doing pretty well. How do you sort of parse through that noise, which is real, and come up with some sort of conviction about the direction of travel? You know, I think it's very tricky. You try and sit here and read the signs and occasionally get lucky like yesterday morning where we were telling people, okay, we're bearish, but it felt like it really wanted to pop after CPI. We got that, that got you a chance to reload. So you're managing that. And it does seem though it swings excessively to extreme bearishness, to extreme bullishness. One thing we spent a lot of time thinking about is that there is very little liquidity either direction, right? We always think about no liquidity on the way down. There's no liquidity on the way up or down, which means any signal you get is lost. So I think you've got to be a little bit nimble. You're running smaller position sizes. So I'm trading this from the bearish side. And again, at the back of that, you look for long ideas. I want to be long some emerging markets, especially out in South America. I love the oil and energy space. I think we are going to spend so much money not only building out sustainable energy, but reinvesting and refocusing on traditional energy sources. The oil services, those companies like that are going to do very, very well. So there's opportunities within this whole kind of mess to try and trade around. Peter, you know the Lehman Index, the Bloomberg Aggregate Index, the credit index, I believe, is down 13 percent, pretty much the largest drawdown in history. That's French Peter Chirot Academy for a bond bear market. I'm fascinated by the equity language. Do you buy the bond dip? So I want to start shifting into some bonds. I think you are going to see people looking at this and saying, okay, this is a little bit more permanent. And to me, when we had quantitative easing, what that does is that every part of the point on the yield curve and risk curve, yeah. someone gets 
pushed out. And I think the reverse is going to happen in, on the way back in. Okay, I think you're going to see Peter, Bitcoin. Peter, come on, we're friends. We've been doing this a while. Peter, you're at Academy of Securities. Your monthly statement is delivered by Carrier Pigeon or whatever they do. You know, you bunch of Navy guys. Great. I'm looking at my monthly statement and I'm south three years yield or four years yield. You're telling me to buy the dip? First off, I think on the retail side, everyone just keeps contributing to AGG and BND monthly. It's in their 401ks. I think you've already seen a lot of selling pressures. When you look at the ETFs, there's a lot of been already a lot of outflow. So I think people are able to reload right now. It's the institutional investors that are driving. I think people are starting to take a little bit of a nibble at yields here. What does that mean for the equity market, Peter, when it didn't seem to blink at yields at two and three quarters of a percent? Are we going to reach the point where it does indeed blink and the Tina thesis is called into question? Yeah, I think we're at that stage right now. I think we're already, already? seeing that where if you take a look at Bitcoin, right, it keeps struggling. And as yields go higher, risk assets, when you look at, say, the higher risk tech stocks, right, they've done worse. So I, I think you're seeing people reprice risk and they're focused on steady growth. They're focused on dividends. They're looking for opportunity. They're looking for energy. <clears throat> so I, I think you're going to, again, I'm not comfortable with equities until they get back to both the March levels of this year, which for most coincides with May 21 levels. So I think that's where we get back. It's another, you know, around 4,200 or something on the S&P, maybe a bit lower. That's where I can get constructive again. And what's going to be the leadership to the downside, if that makes sense, Peter? What what creates the drag? What area of the equity market in particular? And I think it's still going to be this, you know, the big high tech stocks where people question the valuations, where people say, well, you know what? We got a good run. We can take some gains. Look for something else. And maybe we just want to be a little bit conservative with so much going on right now. Peter Shear, thank you so much for being with us of Academy Securities Head of Macro Strategy. Some really insightful moments. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.